Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. This is Cassidy Zachary, fashion historian, and your only host for today's episode as April Callahan, my usual fashion history partner, is on a break. Well, dress listeners, we are back with part two of our conversation with Liz Goldwyn, who first joined us on Tuesday in a fascinating discussion about her work documenting the last generation of American burlesque queens. So if you haven't checked that out before today, please do so. And as we will learn today, Liz's introduction to the fascinating and empowering world and history of burlesque came via the burlesque costume she began collecting as a teenager at flea markets. But her vintage collecting did not stop there. And today she joins us to talk about her personal archive of costume, fashion, and textiles dating from the 1860s to 2010. And we will conclude our conversation with a talk about her work as the founder of the Sex Ed, which is an educational platform and podcast dedicated to sex, health, and consciousness in the digital age. Liz, welcome back to Dressed. I have so many questions for you. Um, where to begin? I guess we could start kind of at the beginning. I love kind of talking to people about their formative relationships to fashion and textiles. And I'd love, you know, if you could answer that same question. If What kind of sparked your fascination with actually not only dress, but also history and sexuality? Because for your work and interests, as our listeners will learn, these three things are not mutually exclusive. They're, in fact, intimately intertwined in really wonderful ways. Gosh, I was always interested in playing dress up in both my parents' closets. And my father had a way bigger closet than my mother, actually. He was known for his style. And so was my paternal grandfather. They both had clothes custom made. My father had suits made on Savile Row. So he would take me when I was really little and his shoes made by John Lobb. I mean, it was just insane. His closet was like huge. It was like a, the size of a bedroom, <laughs> all mirrored. And he was just quite the, the dandy. And my mom was, my mom liked clothes, but she wasn't, she was actually, my mother is super, super feminist. 
So we used to fight all the time with back to school shopping because I was like, I wanted pink, you know, and feathers and everything very feminine. And she was like, what about this nice earth color? (laughs) So in a way, I think she kind of, you know, it took her a long time to get over sort of equating my interest in fashion with something that was like anti-feminist. But yeah, I don't remember a time when I wasn't into it. And then, you know, when I was 12, 13, my friends and I would spend our allowance or our money from like after school jobs on vintage clothes. So we would buy like 1940s dresses and we were into swing dancing and 1920s dresses that we would wear to like school dances. And, you know, this was the nineties. Um, <laughs> and, and you could get those things for really, really cheap then. So I think, you know, a combination of just like being a kid and it wasn't I mean, I didn't even know about fat designer labels. This was a different time. You know, we didn't. And even if we did, it wouldn't have been cool. It would have been very uncool to, if even if you had access to like a designer. First of all, no one I knew's parents would ever buy them something expensive. And what was cool was like streetwear and like vintage clothes. And, you know, you could buy back then like a 1940s print dress for like $14 at like hard bar, you know, in LA. <laughs> I think I read one of your articles because obviously you've been collecting vintage now since you were a teenager, which is amazing. But that one of the first designer pieces you found, and maybe you didn't know what it was, was like an Andre Courage skirt or dress for like under $20 in a thrift store. No, no, no. It was in the dollar a pound in Boston, <laughs> garment district. Wow. Dollar a pound. So that was part of a pound of clothing I got for a dollar. Oh it my was fresh. I did know about, I knew about historical designers pretty early because I was kind of a nerd who always liked history. And my father was a lot older. He had me in his fifties and, you know, he didn't treat me like a child. You know, the first movie he showed me were Fellini movies. And so I got really into, you know, costume and stuff, like extravagance of costume from that. So he would you know, talk to me about these things. And I would, I would learn about, I just was always interested in what older people were wearing and, and looking at the sixties or seventies or forties. So I got familiar with names like Rudy Gernrich and Andre Crege and Yves Saint Laurent and Bonnie Cashin and Norman Norell, like pretty early. I was just interested. I was just curious. Lucky girl. I, would collect, I was a photography major in high school and in college and I would collect old Vogue magazines. So you know, I used to get real, and my my grandmother was actually a Vogue model in the 1920s. And, you know, they would always say what, you know, what people were wearing. So, yeah, I guess it was just from a pretty early age, I got really obsessed with like going to Salvation Armies and thrift stores and like looking for the labels. Because no one was collecting vintage, vintage collecting vintage, like high-end vintage was not, was not a worldwide trend at that time. So you could score, you could really score. Yeah. And that's something I'm excited to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about a little bit more about your grandparents first, though, because you mentioned your grandmother. I, of course, knew who your grandfather was, Samuel Goldwyn. He's a founding father of Hollywood. But then to learn also that your grandmother was this Vogue model, and then I kind of looked her up and got in the archive, Frances Howard's her name. And so many wonderful images are in that like really iconic 1920s style So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your grandparents and how they influenced your relationship to dress and history. Well, I didn't know them. They died before I was born, but I grew up in the house that they built and 
you know, there were a lot of photographs of them, very glamorous photographs. And my grandmother was a, a silent film actress, a Broadway actress, silent film actress. And she actually met my grandfather at a party at Condé Nast's apartment in New York in the, I guess, in the early 1920s. And in those days, Vogue models weren't models. They were actresses or society women. So, you know, that wasn't like her trade. To, but she was photographed by Edward Sykin and, you know, uh, Baron Adolf Meyer and all, all of those sort of great f- photographers of the time. So I definitely had like their pictures around and I, I was exposed to a lot of foreign films and, you know, old Hollywood films and stuff just by virtue of my family being in that business. But I don't know if they had, I don't know if that was as much of an influence as my style is also like a combination of growing up in Southern California and being into like the way like skateboarding uh, imagery and swing dancing. It was like a mishmash of different things. I do want to talk to you about uh, your early interest in sex and sexuality before we kind of move on, because I think this is really important in understanding kind of your interests moving forward and kind of how your kind of early relationship with sex and sexuality informed what you do now. Sure. So as I said, I would fight with my mom about back to school clothes because just I was always very drawn to pinup imagery and showgirl burlesque, like at a pretty young age. And I also, my first job was at Planned Parenthood, working in the clinic in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica. And first I was an intern and then I was a paid intern and um, I answered phones. I peer educated and then I organized their media library. So it was kind of always really, I was always really interested in sexuality and why grownups seem, why everybody seemed to be so ruled by it, but have such a lack of understanding around it have so much shame and fear and trauma. So from a very early age, I was like, when I grow up one day, I'm going to start some sort of educational database. <laughs> I thought I was going to do it in my 60s, to be honest. I bought the domain names for my company, the sex ed, uh, the, I bought the sexed.com, the sexedshow.com, all of them in 2008. So I was really like more, you're going to do this in your 60s after you do other things. And life sort of took some turns. And I was like, why am I waiting for this thing? that I really believe in. But um, yeah, with clothes and, and the, my first film and book, Pretty Things, uh, which was about burlesque, 1860 to 1960, it really started through collecting burlesque costumes that I was finding at flea markets in New York City when I was like 17, going to college in New York at School of Visual Arts and photographing myself in them, trying to emulate these 1930s and 40s glamour photographs and feeling very much like the, the costumes themselves were, were dress up, but they didn't make me feel, I didn't embody that kind of sexuality. I didn't feel confident in myself or I didn't feel confident in my sexuality at all. I mean, I was a teenager and I also was, you know, had this really strong feminist background. And so, you know, sort of exploring that dynamic of, what it means to be a woman, to no matter what your situation is, you're always going to be viewed or you're always going to be measured by, by your sexuality in some way. So yeah, clothes were an integral part of that. And at the same time, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and helped co-found Sotheby's fashion department in New York. Yes. That was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> which was a crazy, it was really crazy. It was literally because I went, I was going to art school at SVA, School of Visual Arts, and my, my major was photography and my minor was art history. We had a family friend that worked at Sotheby's and he and my parents were like, he was going to take me out to lunch. So I went up to Sotheby's to meet him and we were walking through and there was this lady on her knees dressing mannequins. And I was like, oh, that's a 1968 Rudy Gernrich kabuki dress. <laughs> and she was like, how do you know? And I was like, I don't know. I just know. And I was like, and that's like a Norman Rell. And she happened to be the person who was starting the fashion department. And she was like, do you want to come work for me? And at the time I was actually <laughs> assisting a war photographer. I was assisting this, uh, uh, this photographer, Gilles Perez, this war photographer who had done many books on Iran and genocide in Rwanda. So very, very different field. And he would take pictures of me every day, actually what I wore. And he was the one who really encouraged that, like my interest in fashion and clothes was not dumb. And it was not, you know, that it actually was a sociological study. So he actually, he convinced me to take the job. And because of that, I suddenly had access. I, I learned so much from Sotheby's um, because, yeah, it was really right place, right time. But being able to have access to a global group of like museums and dealers and archivists and costume preservations, like, and had already been collecting by that time for a number of years, I realized that I actually had a serious collection. You know, I realized that what I was doing intuitively, like, was actually a thing. Like, I was a collector. And I learned how to catalog things and have provenance. But I also had access now to studying the interiors of couture. Uh, couture and going to Europe with my job. And, like, looking through people's closets. And I realized that the insides of these burlesque costumes that I was collecting were as intricate as the interiors of these haute couture garments. And so I started thinking, wait, this is so weird. How come never, no one's ever done like a, any studies on these garments? And actually, how come nobody's ever done a study on burlesque queens? So over the years, you've amassed quite the vintage collection, many pieces from which you sold in an archive sale in 2018, and many of which were very well-loved and well-worn by you. And I'd love if you could just tell us a few of the stories that these objects could perhaps tell us. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, I have so many clothes. It's probably never going to stop. Um, I do go through periods where like I'm obsessive about collecting and then not. Like when I was in, when I first moved to New York, I remember my ex-husband, he told me when we first started dating, he was like, you can't buy vintage shoes anymore. Cause every time we leave the house, you know, the glue on like the 1940s or 50 shoes would like, and then I'd be walking around with like broken shoes and he'd have to go find duct tape. It was like, he was like, okay, so no more vintage shoes. <laughs> like limits on the vintage shoes. Or if I bought vintage shoes, I wasn't allowed to wear them because I used to really dress mostly in vintage I mean, I have, a, I, ha, I have, there's pieces that I have that like to other people might not seem important. Like the, the G-string that Zarita made me with the googly eyes, or um, I have a lot of Hollywood stuff that's been given to me. Like I have a horsehair ball gown that Ava Gardner wore to the Oscars made by Fontana Sisters of Rome. I have an Oleg Cassini dress that belonged to Jane Mansfield. 
I have a, a knit hat, uh, a knit Rasta hat that was made for Bob Marley by his personal hat maker, which I love. It's one of my prized possessions. My wedding dress was actually a gift from Nicola Gasquier when he first started at Balenciaga. And it was the first couture dress made since Cristobal Balenciaga. And that was really, really special because we were, you know, we were friends and it was an amazing experience to work with him on that and go to Paris and do fittings and collaborate. And, you know, the inside, it says NG, poor LG and blue thread. Wow. And then there's like the hair. There's all these traditions with couture wedding dress that I didn't know about. That was so amazing. And he sent someone, I knew that I wanted this like wood flower crown dipped in wax by Musée Favin, which was the, was the wax museum in Paris. And they had lost that technique at the couture. And so he sent someone like someone to learn at the museum so that I could have this headdress and Massaro who made all the shoes for couture for Chanel. I think Chanel actually bought Massaro. He made my wedding shoes and they had shells. It had shells in my hair crown and my shoes that I collected from the beach where I grew up. So that was like really, that was really, really special to have something like that that sits in a box, <laughs> but, but was, was magical. So yeah. And then there's things like I'll have, I have tons and tons of Sonia Riquel. I was very close with her. I wrote an essay for the monograph of, of her life. They, she family asked me to, um, before she passed, that was amazing to get to know people, you know, like that tons of Rudy Gernrich, lots of Saint Laurent, original Saint Laurent. And then even things like I have a lot of early Balenciaga from Nicola that he would send me and Eddie Sleman was another good friend when he was at Dior and lots of 90s I mean I, it goes on and on I have like tons of like <laughs> 90s Yoji Martin Margiela Comme des Garçons yeah I'm lucky that I'm friends with a lot of contemporary designers and that also I got into collecting so early and be, I would just know what was going to become really popular before people start buying it so I would get I'm not obsessive with collecting anymore but I would get like, oh, Terry Mugler. I got to buy up all the Terry Mugler. Or, or like I would go through like a big Betsy Johnson, like paraphernalia and, and, you know, alley cat phase. It's funny now, like the stuff that's like super popular. I'm, I was not into the first time around, like Fendi baguette bags and like logo stuff. Like I personally never thought that was cool. Like I think like it's cute seeing everybody rock it now. They look really cute. I just at the time was not, that was not my vibe. <laughs> I was into like deconstructionist. Yeah. <laughs> I love it too. Cause you talk about how, when you were working at Sotheby's that collecting vintage wasn't like a big thing at that point in the nineties. Like people weren't super into like wearing it either. Not at all. It became popular. And I was, I got to be part of that. You know, it became popular, but a lot of the, the vintage stores that are now, you know, became very popular. They were just starting at that time too. It used to be that there was only a couple. There was this place, DDA Ludo in Paris and Lily AC in Los Angeles, but it was very rarefied. And there were a few collectors that I know, like Stephanie Seymour has an incredible, the model, the supermodel, 90 supermodel who was in the Guns N' Roses um, November Rain video. She has an incredible collection. Demi Moore has a really amazing collection. I'm not allowed to talk about some of the celebrities that came to me at Sotheby's when 
this I'm still under the NDA from back then, but a lot of people <laughs> that are that are well known now, they would they would come and buy when I was at Sotheby's, which was kind of funny. And I would help them like on their fashion collecting journey. It wasn't big. It wasn't big. Like I have a few friends, like I have a few close friends that were also like my friend, Chloe 70, she's really into vintage, not so much. Like she doesn't like the 50, like I'm wearing a fifties dress. I know people can't see this. I'm wearing fifties halter dress. She was luckily my good for my close friends who are also into collecting that I have known since I was a teenager. We weren't into exactly the same kind of thing. Okay. So we <laughs> together. But I would say of my like contemporaries, like her and Dita Montes are probably the people who have closets that are, you know, of my, you know, are collectors in the same obsessive nature. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Thank you for answering that question. I just had to know. Yeah. No, there are <laughs> some Hollywood people that have, I mean, I will say Demi Moore, like she really knows her stuff and she used to wear like Narelle to the Oscars, like back in the days, like at the height of her movie star fame, like she, she knows her stuff. There are a few people out there who low key have the fifties Balenciaga. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember, I can't remember which actress it was who wore a fifties Charles James on the red carpet at the Met or the Oscars. Oh, it was Marissa Tomei. And it was like this huge controversy. She's a really good friend of mine too. Yeah. <laughs> it's this huge controversy, but it's like, wear it. We have to wear it. Not everything can be in a museum. Yeah, that's the thing that people would say to me about my collection, you know, because not everybody, there are collectors who don't wear things. And there are certain things that I don't, that I don't wear that I'll just buy because it's amazing to have it, but I, I do think things should be worn. And I do, I did love that about working at Sotheby's. I did love meeting the women that we, that would, you know, give us clothes for sale and like hear the stories about how, and it's so personal because you're going into someone's closet and you can see if they've had a mastectomy, for example, uh, or they'll tell you really personal stories because it's their garments. I mean, I worked on the Marlena Dietrich sale and the Duke and Duchess of Windsor sale. And you got a very big glimpse into people's lives. Like Dietrich used to have um, Cohege and Dior build in all her corsetry. So you wouldn't think that like Cohege, which is like the antithesis of like corseted would have that, but it's Marlena Dietrich. So if Marlena Dietrich wants like burgers, <laughs> they're going to give it to her under her like streamlined pantsuits. But yeah, it's so personal. And I love hearing stories from them about like, Oh, and it would still smell like them, have their perfume, or I met my first husband in this dress, or I, I had this trauma in this dress, or actually I'll tell one more story about Charles James. That's kind of insane and messed up um, and does has to do with burlesque. A really close family friend who's now passed, who was actually the inspiration for Maggie the Cat and Cat on Hopton Roof. She was best friends with Tennessee Williams. She was also very close with Charles James and was dressed by him. And she and Gypsy Rose Lee were invited by Charles James to uh, some like Atlanta or somewhere in the South. He was doing like a ladies fashion show. And the Charles James dresses were vol voluminous, as you know, and really corseted. So it was like interior armor and layers and layers of fabric. And this family, they were at this thing and they were sort of the like, you know, the fancy guests at this fashion show. And our family friend went up in the elevator to her room to get something and she was attacked by a man. A man was trying to force himself on her and he couldn't get past 
the Charles James construction. He could not get this <laughs> ball gown off. Literal her, so. armor. <laughs> Literal armor. So this Charles James dress saved her from assault. Wow. Yeah. And so she went back down afterwards. She was all shaken up and she told Charles and, and Gypsy this story. And so, you know, when you collect and you, and you do this, you get to hear stuff like that. That's so personal that gives you an idea of like a time and a place and a, and a, and an emotion that's held in a garment. And that's why I do like wearing things. And I do like the idea of like a 1920s beaded dress that was gorgeous that I wore to tatters on my 21st birthday. Cause you know, as Janis Joplin said, if you buy it today, you don't wear it tomorrow. Cause you got to get it while you can. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so many stories are in the clothes we wear. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you ask? Well, stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N dot com. Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Menopause, perimenopause, These can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. 
They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. We'll kind of transition into today and to what you're doing today, which is so, so amazing. Uh, As you credit these burlesque performers who became your friends, these wonderful women, with sparking your own sexual awakening. And then we fast forward to today, and this awakening is perhaps best encapsulated in your podcast and digital platform, The Sex Ed, which you mentioned, which is dedicated to promoting open and honest conversations about sex, health, and consciousness, which we all need. (laughs) Can you tell us about the significance of these conversations? And then, of course, the place of fashion and the clothed body in them, if, if at all. Well, I just feel that we're all, we're sexual beings from the time we come onto this planet until we leave it. And we have very little uh, resources to, uh, even when we see sex in the media or talk about it, it's so much is based around trauma when we consume it. And we're really far away from reclaiming our pleasure potential. And we're far away from when the consciousness part of it is particularly important to me because to be conscious is to be awake or be aware And I think we tend to compartmentalize our sexuality. We see it as either something outside of ourselves or a a part of ourselves that we sometimes pay attention to or not. But sexual energy is the same thing as creative energy or life force energy. And sex is, is a word that doesn't necessarily have to mean something that you're doing with another person or even penetrative. Um, So I think we're just so uh, we need to get closer to understanding our own sexuality, how to be conscious of it, how to be mindful of it. Um, We are in a transactional culture. We are in a instant gratification culture. And we are in a space where so much of us use sex to fill a void the way that we might use food or alcohol or drugs or pornography or, or, or Instagram or social media, you know, it's a way to feel better about ourselves, to escape. And so when we, we start to use something that's actually very powerful energetically and very beautiful, when we start to really like silo it into that, I think we lose touch with the possibilities. I think about it in my own life and I have a new book that comes out this fall called Sex, Health and Consciousness from Sounds True Macmillan. And it's very much in, in that space of like, how have we miscommunicated around these things and how have we maybe use sex again to, to, to in, in moments where we, we need validation instead of recognizing, I fucking really need validation right now. And we give so much of our agency over our bodies and our sexuality away from such an early age. Because if, we, if we're lucky enough to get any sex education in school, it's going to be about don't get pregnant and, and maybe if we're lucky, don't get pregnant, don't get an STD, and maybe if we're lucky, consent. Right. But not about like, the functions of our body and what pleasure is like. And like, you know, even though I worked at Planned Parenthood at such an early age and had pretty liberal parents, I don't remember anyone ever telling me like, well, when should I have sex and what should I do in this, in these situations? And, and uh, I remember feeling really ashamed getting my period, you know, all, all of these things are that like, girls unconsciously learn this cue of like pulling someone's head up from giving them oral sex because they're worried they 
smell bad. Like where do these things, where do these ideas come from that we smell bad or that we need products to make ourselves smell different? The vagina has natural pH balance or where do like young heterosexual boys generationally learn this thing of like pushing someone's head down, like on, without verbalizing, uh, you know, we, we have sex and we don't communicate about it. So I just feel like I want to do whatever I can to put some light and healing around, around these areas that have been shrouded in, in fear and shame and trauma for so long. Cause having this company, the, the sex ed and being on the receiving end of, you know, just hundreds of thousands and thousands of more than that over the course of my career, both IRL and, and virtually of people all over the world saying that they're worried they're not normal, or they're worried their vulva is supposed to be a certain size, or they're worried their penis is supposed to look a certain way. You carry that shame over into everything else you do in your life. It's not just this one little thing. So trying to work on integrating that. Yeah. And you have three seasons of your podcast. I think you have over 50 episodes, if I'm not mistaken. And what that podcast does is it just makes these subjects that you would never openly talk about. I mean, obviously a lot of people do, but I guess society doesn't want you to openly talk about. You make these these um, accessible, you make them fun, you make them something that people can approach and relate to, um, and just overwhelmingly less taboo. And you also extend something I love you have inclusivity and representation. So, you know, like, why do we just associate sexuality with like young people of a certain age or size and like who gets to be sexual and what does that sexuality look like? So like you're tackling all these subjects in like I said, a really accessible way. You also have, I think, an encyclopedia, if I'm not mistaken, on sex ed, which is very helpful. We have a library that's, um, you know, people actually do like to read as uh, so we have a library that you can find erotica or history or literature or resources for everything that you can think of from parenting to transitioning to social justice resources. And, and we have essays written by experts and, and there's some, there's some new things coming out this, this year in, in that space too. Um, which I can't talk about yet, but maybe <laughs> by the time this podcast comes out, yeah, it, this is, if I'm doing my life's work. I for sure, this is like what I really feel like is my mission on the planet. Yeah. And we're all very lucky that you are doing that mission um, and sharing all of it with us in so many different profound and amazing ways. Liz, thank you so much for being here. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. Liz, thank you so much for such incredibly insightful conversation over these past two episodes where we've covered this wide swath of topics from sex and sexuality to burlesque to vintage fashion. But of course, as Liz's work makes clear, these topics are not in fact mutually exclusive, but are in fact intimately interconnected and interwoven with one another in truly profound and meaningful ways. So dress listeners, be sure and check out Liz's book, Pretty Things, The Last Generation of American Burlesque Queens and her podcast and educational platform, The Sex Ed. You can find more about that at thesexed.com, as well as her recently released book, Sex, Health, and Consciousness. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you feel connected and empowered by your body, sexuality, and the clothes you wear or don't wear next time you get dressed. 
For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at just underscore podcast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.